Time counts and keeps counting. They gets to missing what they had. They get so lonely for the high scrapers and the v -v video. <laughs> Welcome to the Mad Max Minute, where it only took one look and we've got the hots for Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, one minute at a time. I'm Rick. And I'm Julia. And today we're talking about Minute 56, which begins with Savannah highlighting the painting of the crashed plane, and it ends with Slake handing a stereoscope toy to Max. Back again with us for yet another day, another history lesson is Shem Herman from the YouTube channel Mad Max Bible. Hey everyone. Welcome back. So glad to have you here because we're really getting into what I consider the meat and potatoes of the history of the waiting ones here. This is where they really buckle down on the whole explanation of why they're here specifically. Yep. As we mentioned at the end of Monday, Savannah puts the frame that she's holding around a picture of the crash plane and Max sits there as all of the children pantomime bracing for a crash and all the kids have their heads down and the kids are making the swooping sound and onomatopoeia out the wazoo. And then Savannah continues, as Max is surrounded by kids who just pretended to be in a plane crash. She says, And after the wreck, some had been jumped by Mr. Dead, but some had got the luck, and it leads them here. One look, and they got the hots for it. They word it, Planet Earth. And they says, We don't need the knowing, we can live here. And then, of course, all the waiting ones repeat, We don't need the knowing, we can live here. I find it pretty easy to believe that the survivors of this wreck would instantly fall in love with the crack in the earth because it does seem to be the ideal spot to settle. It does. And since we don't know where they were going, this really does seem like the best thing that could have happened to them. Aside from, you know, losing people in the crash, that this really is like the optimal outcome. Mm -hmm. you, you can stay here, you can build a new society, and there's plenty of resources and you can be fine. Yeah, I pretty much agree with you on, on all those fronts. I mean, you know, um, where else, you know, I mean, if, if they landed everywhere else, you know, that would be really difficult for them to actually survive. So, you know, I think they, they hit the jackpot with that one. And I love their terminology. They got the hots for the crack in the earth. That's fantastic. Yeah. And they don't use it in quite the correct context uh, because it does have a sexual connotation to it. But if you remove the sexual connotation, then it fits perfectly that they found this place extremely appealing. So it's it's the perfect thing. And it's just a little humorous that they're not quite using it right. It's like a banana. They found it appealing. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, in the screenplay... There's a lot of like those kids are really twisting up words uh, when they're being introduced to, you know, well, basically Max, I don't know, introduces to, you know, himself to them. Um, those kids start showing up all those little kids. And one of those kids, I think I think it was Slake who says it that when this little Finn, right, you know, Savannah's kid. Mm -hmm. Yeah. He comes up to Max. He basically says that this is Finn and he was pooped by Savannah. That's yeah, <laughs> <laughs> that's in the script. Those kids really have no clue. <laughs> you know, no, they, they don't. And because they don't have the ability to write. Oh, yeah. They do have some writing on this cliff wall that we get to see a little bit in the movie, but they don't seem to have the ability to add to it. Oh, yeah. 
in the screenplay, there are more leavings. There's a total of four leavings. In the movie, they really only talk about the one. And each time a group leaves, they leave a mark on this wall. And the first one is the one that we see in the movie, where it's very clear. It says, these people departed on this date. May God have mercy on our souls. And the subsequent ones, the writing gets less and less sophisticated to the point where Savannah is the fourth leaving and it's just a stick figure. And that's it. That's exactly what I wanted to do. I, I thought I was actually trying to save this <laughs> for the next <laughs> uh, minute because it's, it's really interesting the way they were, you know, losing the, their you know ability to write and all that stuff. And uh, but yeah, I mean, it's true. You know, that's exactly what happens. Those kids are just getting progressively, progressively more and more ignorant. I mean, in a way. This whole situation in, in the Kraken Earth is the exact opposite of what's going on in Bartertown. Bartertown is like a relic of an old civilization, right? And it kind of tries to thrive, but it doesn't go anywhere. You know what I mean? Like it's, it, it doesn't, I don't see it like it has a future. Because look, I mean, it's run by, you know, auntie entity and stuff. So she's stuck in her position. Like she doesn't want to move anywhere. She will do anything to protect Right? Yeah, she doesn't have a retirement plan. <laughs> yeah, she, like, you know, that, that's, yeah. I mean, that, that's a whole other discussion that, you know, maybe we'll have some other day. But basically, um, Max is the force of uh, change and the villain of Max would be somebody who doesn't want to change, right? Mm -hmm. So it's auntie entity and she doesn't want to change. She will do anything to protect whatever she built. She doesn't want to move. Like, that's something that's holding Bartertown back. And it's the same thing. It's kind of like the opposite, but the same thing with the kids in the Kraken year. They're getting progressively ignorant. They don't have the knowledge. They don't crave for knowledge. It's just like they're going backwards in a sense. So it's like the opposite and it's still, they're not going to achieve anything, you know? Uh, and Max is the person that actually goes from one place to another and he bridges that thing. You know what I mean? I like that the children, the waiting ones, refer to the old world civilization as the knowing. The idea that the city is called the knowing, that that's the place where all of the answers are contained because I feel like the waiting ones are kind of hamstringing themselves. They reach a certain age, they wander out into the desert, they take the leaving and they take all of that life experience and knowledge that they've accrued over the years of living in the crack in the earth with them mm -hmm. so that they more or less deprive the tribe of what they've learned. Yeah. It doesn't seem to be a very good plan mm -hmm. for long-term sustainability. Yeah. You could argue that Savannah taking the leaving worked out well for them because she found Max, but that's a one in a million situation there. Yeah. The idea that in their deified view of Captain Walker and the world that was that as soon as they leave the crack in the earth and catch the wind and go back to the city that they will be gifted the knowing that they will then have the knowing yeah because they've gone somewhere physically yeah and what I found actually quite interesting was the fact that those kids even when they're told by Max that there is nothing out there they still want to go mm -hmm. like what what are you even going for like there's there's ruins, there's nothing, you have it good here, and they still want to go, you know? That's, I think, just part of the fact that, you know, they live in this very small, confined society within, you know, like this, this what, this is like a crack in the earth, there's like a, you know, river, and that's it, you know, they don't, they never, they, they don't ever saw anybody else. So, um, you know, I think that plays into that too. It's one of those problem situations where you deify something to a certain level that you don't want to listen or acknowledge new information. And that's where you get into trouble. And these kids definitely get into trouble with some of the decisions that they make a little bit down the road. And as Savannah's story continues, she 
says that time counts and keeps counting, and I'm immediately distracted by the next shot that we get. Right around 30 seconds, 22 frames in, we get a shot of Screwloo sitting up on a ledge next to Sally Ann, and they are munching on something. And the only thing that I have for that shot in my notes is, what is Screwloose eating? It took me completely out of the scene. <laughs> oh, oh, God. It looked like a biscuit or a cake of some kind. Yeah. yeah. And it may have been as simple as taking some nuts and fruit and maybe some dates and mashing it all together into a protein bar type <laughs> yeah. thing. Yeah. You don't even have to cook it. Just mash it up to make a paste and then like let it dry into a bar or a cake. I certainly hope that's the situation because it looked like a cookie to me. And I'm like, okay, I know that airlines, they have bags of snacks and drinks, but they've been in the crack in the earth for how many years? Oh, like 15 years? 15 years? Yeah, a long yeah. time. <laughs> a long time. No <laughs> amount of preservatives in a bag of cookies is going to make <laughs> airline food, which I think if anyone paid attention to stand-up comedy in the 80s, is never good. <laughs> okay. We kind of have a track record of getting distracted by food on this podcast. I remember back when we were talking about the first movie, there was the topic of what it was Max having for breakfast. And I think we got caught up on, is it a waffle or is it a bagel? <laughs> and that was, okay. that was most of that episode. Is that why you were so right. hung up on the fact that I told you about those kids giving the, you know, Max popcorn? Like, yes. yes. <laughs> I'm fascinated by what people eat in this universe. Yeah. Because in the movies, they spend very little time worrying about food. Hmm. So in a way, it's kind of like the opposite of anime. Where... Right. <laughs> <laughs> you <know>. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Oh, the, the thing about second 32, when you actually see Skrulos, I like the fact that they actually single him out as somebody different. I think this is the, is this the first time you see him? No, it's not. No, we've seen him a couple times before yep. and he is always separate. Yeah. And in fact, I think it's, was it last Friday's minute or maybe it was? I think it was last Friday's minute where Skrulos found himself suddenly surrounded by other people. Yeah. And he like quietly and very smoothly ducked out of the crowd because he didn't want to be near a bunch of other people. So yeah, they've made a point before to show how he separates himself from everybody else. Hmm. And that being said, I really like that he has found friendship with the monkey hmm. and that they are sitting there together enjoying their protein bar. Do you think that's a parallel between Max and Skrulus because of the monkey? Ooh, I like that. You're right. Because Max is also quite the loner, and every time he does find himself, I'm thinking specifically about the, the compound dwellers, he was invited to go with them to their ultimate destination, and he didn't want to. He got himself out of that situation so that he could go be alone again. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. All he needed was his car and his dog, and when both of those were taken from him, then and only then was he willing to help the compound dwellers, because <laughs> yeah. he had no other choice. <laughs> right. The alternative was staying in the hospital truck. And, you know, Max wasn't going to do that. Yeah. He doesn't like hospitals. He's had bad experiences. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In a way, when we see Skrulus with the monkey, it's kind of like a parallel, you know, to Max in the sense. But then again, when you compare it to the feral kid from, you know, Mad Max Sue, there, I don't see, I don't, you know, I don't see the same connection between Skrulus and Max. Like, eventually those two sort of characters connect on a certain level. You know what I mean? Like in Mad Max Sue, they did. Feral Kid remembered Max as, you know, somebody very important in his life. But Skrulus, like, do we really see him like that much in the movie, except for, you know, driving on the 
top of the car with his ass hanging out. Like, I don't know. This character is kind of baffling to me. You know what I mean? Yeah, I'm not sure this character has too much of an arc with a satisfying ending. I think he just exists, sort of. You know what? If you look at the ending, I think we can see him again with a kid. Is that him? No. That's not him. But we see him, screw loose, without any makeup on. So that's some, I don't know, that might account for something. I don't know. Let me see if I yeah. can pull that up. It does signify a change between his position in society here and how he felt about that. And ultimately, by the end of the movie, something in him has changed where he's no longer making himself up. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, you can kind of see Screwloose's path as starting off as the loner waiting one. And then he has this fantastic experience going to Barter Town and being involved with this gigantic chase and being the only one of the waiting ones to leap from the steam engine, steam generator truck thing to commandeer his own vehicle. Right. And then <laughs> he has the good fortune of catching up with them yeah. before they fly away. So he probably was emboldened by that. Yeah, maybe he actually is kind of like the feral kid in the sense that he's trying to mimic him. Max, you know? You know, like when he's trying to drive the car with a, holding a pan and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I really like Screwloose. And I don't know if I get bothered at all when people see Screwloose and they just dismiss him as a proto-war boy. Mm. I kind of laugh at the implication. The idea that his design would then inspire the war boys somewhere along in Fury Road. But I feel like a lot of people see him and just go, oh, hey, remember Fury Road? And it's like, hey, you know, no, Thunderdome you know. was better than you thought. <laughs> <laughs> Not in all instances, but in most instances, better than you thought. I don't, I don't think that Skrullus is in any way uh, a proto-war boy at all. Because from the sure fact that war boys were basically, the way they look is a result of downsizing the original designs, which were very, very cluttered. And, you know, that was just very distracting in that way. I mean, this is how Brendan McCarthy works. And he just, you know, I don't know. I don't know if you've seen those early, probably you have uh, seen those early concept designs for war boys back when they were called uh, Necro Boys for Fury Road. They were a mess. Like there was a whole lot of things happening. And... So eventually they downsized it to this look, which is kind of similar to uh, Skrullu's, but I don't think there's any relation whatsoever between the two. Looking at the concept drawings for Necro Boys, yeah, they were very, very busy looking. Mm -hmm. Something that looks, I would say, vaguely Native American sort of thing with the face drawings and the very slight dread situation. It's very interesting. Jump on Google Images, go check it out. It's very cool to see. I have jumped on different message boards and checked out before. There are people that are out there talking about fan theories, the idea that Screwloose is a loner in amongst the waiting ones because he used to be an actual war boy and that he escaped from the Citadel, wandered through the desert, and eventually found the crack in the earth and was adopted in there. You okay. could say no. that it's a possibility because in the Vertigo comics, Max goes to Gastown to win an engine and Dr. Dealgood is there so that the location of Barter Town and the location of Gastown are close enough that one guy can make it there eventually. But the idea of Screwloose actually being a war boy, it just doesn't sit right with me. No, no, not at all. No. Yeah, yeah, that's just, no, that's that's all backwards. That doesn't work. No. <laughs> yeah, that's grasping at straws. Yep. I know we grasp plenty at straws, but I mean, that is grasping. Really? Even we have our limits. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> 
Next thing you know, somebody's going to be trying to come up with a backstory to the monkey that he's holding. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know? We did that, but... Yeah, <laughs> yeah we did that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, boy. So, anyway, Savannah tells the story about how the people that initially found the crack in the earth, they see it as paradise, they love it, they decide to settle there, they start creating this little society, but then nostalgia comes in and they start missing what they had they get lonely for the high scrapers and the v -v -v video and so and so savannah says they does the pictures so they'd remember all the knowing that they lost and it's at this point that we go from the painted wall to slake bringing this picture toy and handing it to max now for the longest time, I thought this was just a Viewmaster. I think Mattel makes them or something like that. But these things are more specifically called a stereoscope. Stereo because you're using two eyes, scope because you look through it. But the whole idea is that the lenses inside would let you look at a picture and then the picture itself is divided in such a way that you get kind of a 3D effect. And it's something that was popularized, I'm pretty sure, in the 1950s as a toy, where before it was used as a portable slideshow device for instruction purposes. But once these toy manufacturers started making it, they went a bit more juvenile with it. Considering that this is a child's toy, I'm surprised. You know what? Never mind. That is going into next minute. I'm going to save it. Never mind. All right, because we were about to see the pictures and I was about to talk about them too. <laughs> yep. <laughs> That's almost the only thing that happens next yeah, minute. So. Exactly. It's like, okay. Yeah, we don't want to go okay, into it. So, so, okay, maybe we can talk about the... The torch that they're holding right next to it that's a little bit clever that's that's all about there is about this scene i think yeah because even when we have like the americanized version with the viewmaster you do need to point it towards a light to get it to work its best oh. so yeah i like that they put the torch up behind it yeah so they get the best effect of using it here's a little thing that actually uh lines up with my notes that i made before uh, actually i came up came on the uh, on the podcast the entire thing, I don't know I don't know if you talked about it before, but the entire crack in the earth, that location was very difficult to film exactly because there was no sun in it. Because, you know, there was a very small area above them which allowed sun in. So Dean Semler, who was actually shooting the movie, was having a lot of trouble with that. They were actually waiting for sun to come out. And when there was sun, they had to wait for clouds to move over. And then they actually could shoot. So, you know. That does seem very tricky. Yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. Yeah, they really, they literally really have to not wait. Not much to work with. <laughs> yeah. Plus, you're out in the middle of the woods. Electric lights would not be possible because you'd have to hide generators somewhere. You'd have to figure out where you could put these lights. With the way yeah. they were shooting this space, hiding equipment would be very hard. Yeah. <laughs> For a minute, yes. I was actually thinking you're talking about those kids and lights and stuff like what? <laughs> they didn't have generators. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. Cutting back just a little bit, talking about that the original group started missing what they had and they got so lonely for the high scrapers in the video. The v -v -v video. The oh, v -v -v video. Yeah. I'm sorry. <laughs> Pronounce it correctly, okay? <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. At first, I was critical of this idea. Like, these people have found this oasis in the desert, and they have many of the things that they need here. Seriously, just be happy here. 
and grow a society here why yearn for things that you voluntarily left behind. But then I got to thinking about when we go camping, uh-huh. which we're not huge on roughing it. We're basic campers, kind of middle of the road campers, but we camp without electricity. And I enjoy that type of camping. But by like the second night, I just want to turn on a light switch. And I just wanted to stop being dark all the time. Yeah. I ended up sympathizing with them that, yes, this is an existence where they have the things that they need and they're able to get the things that they need. It's still a lot of work. Yeah. And coming from a city, especially in a city where everything you need is right at your fingertips and you have luxuries and conveniences to all of a sudden wipe that all away, that's very difficult. So now I sympathize with them. I also saw it as an example of just the human spirit being hungry for more. I don't think you would find a lot of civilizations in history that are just content with what they have. There's always these civilizations that are eager to move beyond, thinking like, you have the relative prosperity of these people in the crack in the earth, and yet they get that yearning for something that they had or something that someone else has. It goes back to that idea I raised up on Monday, the idea that people are always trying to move over into where they think the grass is greener. And I feel like that's something you see a lot with young adults and adults, not so much with children. And I think that might contribute to one of the reasons why when the waiting ones reach a certain age, they get that wanderlust. Yeah. And they're like, I'm going to take a leaving and I'm going to see if I can track down Captain Walker. Yeah. Although I think it's actually uh, the leavings are the right. Like it's something they have to do. It's kind of, it's, <clears throat> excuse me, it's kind of like part of the tradition in a way. Like once you reach a certain age, it's your duty to go out there. Mm. But at the same time, like imagine how many years they've been waiting for somebody to actually show them that there's something more. And then Max comes in, like they actually see somebody else from the outside. That I think was the actual spark. Like they see Max, they see somebody who's talking about, you know, the cities, you know, they don't know what cities are. They don't know, I don't know, about the, what skyscrapers, I don't know, I, don't know, I can't remember what, what he actually said then, but, you know, I think that was the actual spark that they really wanted to leave. Um, apart from the fact that they were, you know, kind of like religiously um, cherishing all the little things that were left behind, you know, from the, you know, plane crash and stuff like that. Before we start moving away from the wall paintings, I wanted to bring up something from another source. In the video game Fallout New Vegas, it takes place in the American Southwest around the city that once was Las Vegas, and there is an area on the map called Nellis Air Force Base. Now, Nellis Air Force Base is a very heavily guarded location. It's very tricky to get to. You have to go through a rocket field more or less. But once you actually get in and get good with the faction in that place, they're called the Boomers, you have an opportunity to hear their story. And they have one character specifically that is in charge of memorizing and then regurgitating to others the history of that tribe. And the way that they have chosen to keep track of their history is by painting pictures on a wall. And there is one person who does the tell and tells the story of the boomer tribe. And 
the way it works, everybody in the Fallout universe that exists in the games was once in a vault. And the boomers were in Vault 34, which happened to have just a load of weapons inside. So when the vaults opened and they went out, they were incredibly heavily armed and they were able to shoot their way through any raiders they encountered until they eventually found Nellis Air Force Base. So once they got into Nellis, they fortified it, they kept track of their history, and then they taught themselves how to fly fighter planes because there were virtual reality pods because Fallout is all about this whole 1950s future tech thing. So their aspiration in life is to find a bomber and then use that bomber to fly around dropping bombs on their enemies. So there's a very similar idea of a secluded tribe that paint their history on a wall and their one aspiration and dream in life is to fly. Ah, hmm. yeah. Right. It seems like they pulled it straight from Mad Max. The only big difference between the boomers and the waiting ones is that the boomers are people of all ages. It's not just children. So there's that. Yeah, Yeah, and their aspiration is just to go around killing everybody. Well, that's everyone's aspiration in the Fallout universe. <laughs> that is true. <laughs> it is a game about killing people in the post-apocalypse. It is what it is. Speaking of backstories of characters from other movies, there is a fun little behind-the-scenes thing involving the backstory for The Waiting Ones, because the boomers took a lot of inspiration from The Waiting Ones. The Waiting Ones took a lot of inspiration from someone else. Yeah, it actually comes from the backstory uh, for The Feral Kid and Mad Max 2. And this backstory was really a complete mystery for, for a, a ton of... I don't, know, I don't know how many years, but... Um, nobody knew about this except for Emil Minty, who um, uh, spilled the beans about this, um, I don't know, on some podcast or something. I don't know. I was watching this and basically I was listening to that podcast. And he said that the entire, I mean, when he went to uh, the casting for Mad Max 2, George Miller and Terry Hayes, they asked him, you know, what do you think the backstory for your character is? And he came up with this backstory on the, on the spot along with his father. And the backstory went something like this. Um, he was flying over the outback in a plane uh, with his mom and his, and his dad. And the plane ran out of fuel and they crashed. And dad went to look for fuel and he never came back. And mom then went to look for dad, but she never came back either. And the kid basically was left alone to fend for himself. And that's how he became feral because, you know, he had no adults around him. He was all alone. He had to, you know, learn how to survive. And this backstory was told to George Miller and Terry Hayes. And later on, it resurfaced when uh, George Miller and Terry Hayes were talking about just, you know, they were shooting some random ideas about the next movie. And Terry Hayes just basically came up with this, uh, recalled basically this idea of Emil Minty talking about this stuff. And he came up with the idea of a tribe that's been left alone just the exact same way. And the funny thing is that, you know, they eventually wrote the whole, I mean, at least the half of Beyond Thunderdome around it. And every time Emil Minty watches it, it's like, you know, he, he says that I came up with this with my dad. And he's right, because that's exactly, you know, this is just one of those things that those movies have in them and they just keep going. And so, uh, you know, they just keep reoccurring. Sometimes you don't know about them, but then you you know, you kind of see the story of, you know, those kids in the crack in the earth and you're like, okay, well, this lines up perfectly with the story that was told, what, four years before, in 1981. And there's a whole lot more of those. And this is one of the reasons that I really don't believe Miller when he says that he doesn't 
see any logic in any of this <laughs> i know <laughs> that like i mean it's just it's just like one of those little little very little things but when you start piling them up like even the little things like you know shooting the shotgun and misfiring it in Fury Road. And it was just like a complete coincidence because I haven't seen Fury, uh, Road Warrior in 20 years or something like that. That's what Miller says. That's nonsense. He, of course he hasn't. <laughs> like, you know, even those little things like in Fury Road when you see uh, the skull on Nux's car and he says, oh, it kind of looks like, you know, gyrocopter skull or it's like a little, I don't know. It's just, a, I don't know. It's just by accident. You know, he, like, he, he acts like he doesn't have any input in this. And then you actually talk to people who work on... Uh, the props and work and you know costumes and all that stuff and they you know and they tell you no we've been instructed this is what that was supposed to look like the gyrocopter's head uh you know gyro captain's head like it's, it's really there you know all those things so um yeah it's a little fun fact about Emilmenti's uh story and how it actually i think i'm pretty sure that it actually at least it lodged itself into terry hayes's and and, and miller's mind long enough to actually be turned into a premise for the movie i don't have any facts like i don't have like you know actual solid evidence for this but i think to me that's enough except you know i mean at least when you when you look at all the other things that miller is being re you know he's recycling all the time for those movies it's good enough for me yeah i mean <laughs> yeah i'm sorry i'm rambling i i told you i <laughs> you know i just started talking about fury road anything you know so no that's great yeah I could go on. I mean, so uh, yeah, a little a little fun fact about about the story of those little of those kids and the crack in the earth. So that pretty much brings us to the end of today's minute. We're gonna put a pin in this situation. Slake has brought the viewmaster, for lack of a more succinct term, over to Max. And on Friday, Slake is going to do that thing that everybody just loves when you sit your friends down and say, "Hey, let's look at this slideshow." <laughs> <laughs> that's the situation that max is gonna find himself in but it's not all bad because once the slideshow is over we get to see the carving that captain walker left in the wall so that's gonna be a lot of fun to talk about so be sure to come back for that the mad max minute podcast is a fan project by rick and julia ingham mad max franchise was created by george miller and byron kennedy is presented by kennedy miller mitchell productions and distributed by warner brothers Mad Max Minute is produced and edited by Rick Ingham. Our opening music is Verdi's Dies Irae by Daniel Batista of DanielBatista.com. And our outro music is We Don't Need Another Hero by MilitiaVox of MilitiaVox.com. Our home on the internet is MadMaxMinute.com. You can follow us on Twitter at MadMaxMinute, like us on Facebook by searching for Mad Max Minute, and join our Facebook listener group, Mad Max Minute Beyond Microphone. If you'd like to support the podcast, visit MadMaxMinute.com where you can check out our Public storefront by clicking the store link join our patreon by clicking the support link or make a one-time donation by clicking the donate link thank you for joining us for minute 56 of beyond thunderdome we'll see you next time Over!